to Acts chapter 1. Had a discussion with uh, my daughter Kimberly, I think it was yesterday, not a real long discussion, but she's taking um, a college course on American history right now, and I don't remember exactly how she said it, but I think it was probably something I would have repeated when I was a freshman in college. I hate history! And I kind of mentioned to, she asked me if I like history. I said, well, you know what? I've actually learned to really like history. Um, as I get a little bit older now, I, I value history in its, of itself. But I told her, I said, a lot of it has to do with how it's done and what you're studying. And I said, you can teach American history and make it really, really boring. Or you can teach American history and make it exciting. And so I've had to kind of learn to appreciate history. And to be real honest, um, when I look at the book of Acts, it's a book ultimately about history. Which means it can be really boring. Or it can be really exciting. And I'm hoping that it's going to be really exciting. And part of that will do with how we can approach it and what we can, what we can share. But um, history is obviously critical for a number of reasons. You know, you've got the, the, you know, the, the idiom that if you don't know history, you're failed to repeat it. We have all those kind of things, you know. And so history is good for us. And so really what we're going to be starting here is a study of the book of Acts, which is really about our history it's about what we're doing here and how this all came about. And so I hope that as we go through that, it'll be both encouraging to us but also exciting. And um, Dustin and I have been meeting on this. We'll be co-teaching this. And um, it's interesting. I've only been through about the first. I've studied it before, but I've never really taught through it before. And so it's always fresh. You guys know this is the way I've always operated, where I'll take something and try to teach something I've never taught before. I'm through about maybe... Three quarter, not probably about half of the Old and New Testament books, I think, in my 30 years of preaching here. And so this one's new to me. I've never taught Acts before. And as I go back through it again, um, in terms of studying it, what's been interesting for me is um, seeing some of the things and the variety that's, that's in it. And so we're going to see all kinds of stuff as we go through this book. And so I, I hope this will be an exciting study for us. We're just going to dive right in. Um, generally, what we do when we start a series is we do a, a, just a, a one week of introduction. We don't spend a whole lot of time in the text. We give all the background information in that. But I'm just going to dive right in today because much of the background information can be found in going through the beginning of the first part of Acts, but also Luke's other book, which is the Gospel of Luke. And so we're going to go ahead and we're going to dive right in. And I'm going to go ahead and just give you, you give us um, sort of the, the, the three points as we walk our way through it from t- this morning's teaching time. And the first one is this, that our faith is supported by well-documented history. That's why I started this morning the way I did. Our faith is supported by well-documented history. Go ahead and turn to Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1. You get there as well. I'm just going to read a couple of the first verses here. Acts chapter 1 starts off like this. The first account I composed, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up to heaven after he had by the Holy Spirit given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. We're going to look at a a number of things this morning. First off, you notice that the book doesn't tell us who the author is. Anybody know who the author is? Tradition tells us it's Luke, right? And we, we know that. There's plenty of evidence. It doesn't come right out and identify. Many, many of Paul's letters tell us right at the very beginning that it was Paul. This one does not tell us it was Luke, but we know that it is based on history and some other things. We'll see that in the text this morning. But what, what we have here is Luke actually wrote the book of Acts, 
And he wrote the Gospel of Luke as well, one of the four Gospels. Now here's an interesting little fact. How much of, the, how much of our Bible, or our New Testament as a whole, do you think that makes up? Somebody throw a percentage out there for me. You might be surprised. 27% of our New Testament was written by one guy, Luke. Now, how much of it was written by Paul? Almost the other, you know, another half, right? But Luke actually records about 27% of our New Testament. I didn't realize that. Um, some of it was by what he researched. We discover in the text, and, and we'll look at um, the gospel in a second here, but that he thoroughly researched it. He was a historian. So some of what we're going to read and learn from Luke in the book of Acts was based on his study of what others had said, eyewitness accounts and, and other things that he had learned. However, much of it was from his own account, too, because in the book of Acts we learn that he actually traveled with the Apostle Paul. He was with them on his second and his third missionary journeys. And in fact, he was one of the last people with Paul when Paul was martyred. In fact, Paul says that he was the only one left. The only one right there. And so, much of what he wrote, again, was from his own thorough study, but some of it was simply because of his own eyewitness account. He, he saw and witnessed the things that he wrote about. What do we know about Luke? Well, based on Colossians chapter 4, he was a Gentile. He was a physician. Um, he's the only Gentile author we have in the whole entire Bible. The rest of the whole entire Bible, the rest of the 66 books, was written by men from Jewish backgrounds. So Luke is the only Gentile author. He's like us. Um, He appears to have been highly educated. It would make sense since he was a doctor. His Greek vocabulary in the the book here, I know this might not be appreciated by all, but he's got probably one of the broadest vocabularies of the Greek language of all the authors of of the New Testament. And that's important. He uses a lot of words that, he, that only he uses. Um, his command of the Greek language was, was extensive. Um, there's something called classical Greek, which is different than what the New Testament is written in. It's written in something called Koine Greek, which is sort of like um, easy man's Greek. It was just the everyday language that was spoken. But Luke could write like classical Greek authors. Um, and it's fascinating when you kind of get into some of that. And we'll see a little bit of that in the way that he writes and the, and the rhetoric that he uses throughout the letter. And I'll try to point some of those things out to you just because I think it'll be interesting to see that. Um, he had an extremely vast knowledge of the Old Testament, which is interesting too because, again, he was a Gentile. But yet he quotes scripture in the Gospel and in Acts. He quotes from the Old Testament over and over and over. He, he understood that. Now, part of that may be because he traveled with Paul for so long. And Paul, we know, was a scholar among scholars. He's trained in the best schools. So maybe he learned much of that from the Old Testament from the Apostle Paul. So he had this vast knowledge of the Old Testament. Now, he never, ne- he never met Jesus when he was alive here on earth. We don't know at what point he came to know Christ, at what point he placed his faith in Christ. But he knows an awful lot about Christ. And we'll see that as we go through the letter here. What about the recipient? Well, as you notice who he wrote to here? It's a guy by the name of Theophilus. Now, Theophilus, we don't know much about either. We don't know if he was a um, Gentile or a Jew because his name is somewhat neutral in that regard. Okay? Um, we don't really know whether or not he was saved, whether he really knew Christ. What we're told, and we'll see this in a minute here, was that he had a knowledge about Christ But we don't know what that knowledge was. Was it saving faith in Jesus Christ? Was it simply that he had heard about Jesus Christ? The general consensus is that he was either a God-fearing Gentile or he was a Jewish convert. Either one of those fits our study here. 
And I don't know that it's all that important that we understand a whole lot about him, except maybe the reason why Luke was writing to Theophilus, because that will be important to us. Luke actually tells us what his purpose is in writing here. Notice that he starts off in verse 1 there, he says, the first account I composed. What do you suppose that first account is? Yeah, it's the gospel. It's the gospel of Luke. Notice that he says, it was all about that Jesus be, or what Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up into heaven. So the gospel of Luke covers the life of Christ up until his ascension. What we have here is Acts is actually the second volume. When Luke wrote Luke and Acts, it was a two-volume set. One covers the life of Christ while he was here on earth up until his ascension. And then the second is what happened after that. And so we have a two-volume set of everything from the birth of Christ all the way through the church for the first 20 or 30 years of the church. It takes us all the way up until what we believe to be the martyrdom of the Apostle Paul. We don't know how much time um, elapsed after the end of the book of Acts and the martyrdom of Paul. Probably not a whole lot of time, maybe a few years. And so it covers this span of everything from the birth of Christ all the way up to the end of the church, which probably amounts to about 60 years of history. Luke actually tells us what his purpose is. I want you to turn to Luke chapter 1, verse 4. He tells us why he actually wrote this account. Because you might ask, you know, we already had three Gospels. Why do we need a fourth? And why do we really need to know the history of the church? And so Luke actually tells us more specifically in the first chapter of Luke. So if you turn to the Gospel of Luke chapter 1, I'm going to read the first four verses. He says... Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us, just as they were handed down to to us by those from the beginning, were eyewitnesses and servants of the Lord, or of the Word, it seemed fitting for me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning, to write it out for you in consecutive order, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the exact truth about the things that you have been taught. Notice he says many others have taken up their own accounts. We know that that's the three Gospels at a minimum. But there were likely other things that were written by other people too that weren't Scripture. So there were likely other accounts as well, but clearly there's the other three. Notice he says here that he relied on eyewitness accounts, eyewitness, eyewitnesses, he says, and the servants of the Word, where he got his accounts from. Notice he says that his purpose in writing this was actually that Theophilus would know the exact truth about the things that he had been taught. So Theophilus had been taught about Jesus Christ. And so Luke says, the reason I'm writing is so that you can know the exact truth. Now there's probably a number of of nuances to that, one of which was just the specific details. He wanted to make sure that what Theophilus understood was exactly what happened. In other words, an accurate historical account. But it probably goes beyond that because he was probably writing these two books, the the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts, as a form of apologetics, which is a proof. And he does that by saying, look, I was there, I saw these things. I recorded eyewitness accounts of others. So what he's essentially doing with Theophilus and what he's doing for us is he's saying, I'm going to provide you with an account of what happened from the birth of Christ until the end of Paul's ministry. I'm going to walk you through what Christ did. I'm also going to walk you through the establishment of the church and what the early church did. Not just so that you can understand what happened, 
but so that it can provide the foundation, the girding to your faith. It's an apologetics. It's the proof is in the pudding, so to speak. And so that's what we actually have here, is this account where he is providing the evidence to show us that what we believe is based in historical fact. Our faith is not blind. I hate that phrase, just blind faith. I believe in something reasonable. I believe in something historical. I'm not an idiot. I don't just close my eyes and hope and pray that it's all real. I consider myself to be an educated individual who can reason through the facts and the evidence And that's exactly what he wanted to provide here for Theophilus. And so that's what he did. So the amazing thing about the gospel and about the history of the establishment of the church is that it's not built on religious myth, it's not built on philosophy, it's not built on human wisdom, it's not built on wishful thinking, it's not blind faith. It's built on history. We have the historical documents, both biblical and, believe it or not, secular. Jesus Christ is not just mentioned in the Bible. The events of the early church are not just mentioned in the Bible. They're historical accounts written by people like Josephus and others that document the things that we're going to read about in the books, or actually in the book of Acts. It's built on eyewitness accounts. I want you to just turn to 2 Peter chapter 1 with me briefly. This actually became the foundation of the apostles' ministry in the early church. First, or I'm sorry, Second Peter, chapter one. This is what Peter writes to his audience: For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's likely referring to the first coming of Christ there. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, such as the utterance as it was made to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And we ourselves heard this utterance and made from heaven when we were with him and on the holy mountain. He's referencing there the transfiguration of Christ. We know that Peter happened to have been with Christ for at least three and a half years of his earthly ministry. He witnessed him perform the miracles. He was there when these things were done, but he was also there on the mountain where Christ was transfigured, standing with Moses and Elijah, and this voice from heaven comes down and basically says, This is my son, in whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. And Peter is telling his readers here, What I'm sharing with you is my eyewitness account. These aren't just a tale I heard. I'm not just sharing with, sharing with you something I heard from somebody else. I was there. And so Luke is doing the same thing for Theophilus. Um, some of you might know that um, I love biblical archaeology. Um, I might have mentioned this before. Um, I am fascinated with looking at the amount of, uh, of archaeological evidence that continues to validate what we see, not just in the Old Testament, but the New Every single week, there's a new find. Every single week, whether it's a signet ring from somebody who served one of the Israelite kings, or a piece of pottery found in a specific area that demonstrates Semitic people like the Jews were living in a certain area where we were told they never lived before. I am fascinated by that stuff because it tells me what I believe is historical. 
Um, I brought a couple of, of books in here, just things that I thought might encourage you. You know, I don't recommend books very often, but I think there's a tremendous amount of value in some of these things. I love coffee table books. This is one of my one of my favorites that I picked up a few, year, a few years ago. It's just called Evidence for the Bible. What I love about it is it goes through all of this archaeological evidence with pictures and descriptions of places that we hear about in the New Testament and the Old Testament, validating archaeologically that they were real, that they happened, that they existed. Um, I love it. I call it a coffee table book. Now, I read it from front to, front to back. But it's one of those things you can literally just throw on a coffee table and pick up every once in a while when you have ten minutes just to read through something. Or don't tell people I said this, but where you take it in the bathroom with you. you got ten minutes to kill. Okay, but you don't call it a bathroom book because nobody else will read it, right? You call it a coffee table book. Okay? I've mentioned a series to you called The Patterns of Evidence on Exodus. There's now four DVDs. Fascinating because it walks through. One of the big problems with, with archaeology today is almost everything is built on the timeline of the Egyptian, or Egyptian timeline. And it's not very good. Even within secular circles, they can't agree on what Pharaoh ruled when and everything else. But what's fascinating is when you can take the timeline you see in the scriptures with, with Moses and the Exodus, and how when you properly understand what archaeology has in the, in the record, and you can overlay them, and it's shocking. We have found the place where Joseph and his brothers lived. We found the tomb of Joseph in the multicolored robe. We have a statue of Joseph in his multicolored robe. We've seen where the Jews lived prior to the Exodus. We've traced their route through the wilderness and have evidence archaeologically of them making that. We have evidence showing Joshua coming into the land and conquering Canaan. It's all there in the archaeological record. And books and videos like this show that. Now one of the really sad things, this kind of breaks my heart, is that a couple of months ago, the last seminary in the United States that had a biblical archaeological program shut it down. Because nobody's interested. Nobody wants to study it anymore. It breaks my heart. Because there's so much out there. There's a brand new book. I hope to pick it up. I'm going to tell Amy I want it for my birthday. Called Where God Came Down by a guy by the name of Joel Kramer. John Haller just recommended this. Because um, basically he's an archaeologist. And he's got a brand new book out that takes us to ten different sites related to Christ and the New Testament. Um, and provides all the archaeological evidence demonstrating it really happened. This is where, here's the evidence. So I would encourage you, pay attention to these things, because our faith is rooted in history, in archaeology. And that's exactly what Luke is telling us here as he starts his introduction to the book of Acts. As he does his introduction to the book of Luke, he basically tells Theophilus, I'm going to provide for you an orderly account so that you can know exactly the things that took place as they related to Jesus Christ and as they related to the early church. So what we believe is based on historical fact. Now we could spend a whole entire week showing you this. don't have time for that this morning. But what we have here is a historical account, eyewitness accounts. And so as we go through the book of Acts, we're going to see that. We're going to see the evidence for our faith why we believe what we believe. We're also going to see what they did with that and the charge that they lived out, the commission that Christ gave them and how they walked forward with that and how that will encourage us to do the same. And that leads to our second point this morning, which is that we have been commissioned and divinely empowered to be Jesus Christ's witnesses. That's why he left us here. So we've been commissioned and divinely empowered to witness Jesus Christ. Look at 
verse 2 of the first chapter of Acts there. I'll read verses 2 and 3. Second half of verse 2. He says, After he had, by the Holy Spirit, given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen, to these he also presented himself alive after his suffering, by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. Now Luke tells us that Jesus did a couple of things here. Between Jesus' resurrection and his ascension, which took place right before the book of Acts starts, it says that Jesus taught his apostles about the kingdom of God. For 40 days he appeared, and he told them all about the kingdom of God, what was to come. It was their training time. He was equipping them. It says that he gave them orders. That's a commission. And the two go hand in hand. If you remember at the end of... In fact, I'm going to turn there. You don't have to turn there with me. I'm going to read from the end of the book of Luke. There's a little bit more detail there with the ascension of Christ, but Luke chapter 24, starting in verse 44. Jesus said to his disciples, These are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all the things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened his or opened their minds to understand the scriptures, and he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead on the third day. And that a repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending forth the promise of my Father upon you. That's the Holy Spirit. But you will stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. And he said to them, or he sent, or he let, he let or I'm sorry, led them out as far as Bethany, and he lifted up his hands and he blessed them. While he was blessing them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they, after worshiping him, returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple praising God. So he opened up their minds, it says. He revealed how everything prophesied about him in the Old Testament had been fulfilled and will be fulfilled throughout the book of Acts. As a result, he says, repentance and forgiveness would be preached to all the nations. They'd be witnesses of this. So Jesus had given them this commission he taught them, he prepared them, he was now going to be sending them out. However, before he would send them out, Jesus commanded them to wait in Jerusalem until God had fulfilled a very specific promise. That's the next few verses in our text. Look at verses 4 and 5 of Acts chapter 1. Gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And so Jesus had just told his apostles, he spent 40 years teaching them, I'm sorry, 40 days teaching them about the kingdom, preparing them to be his witnesses, said, you're going to be my witnesses, now stay here, hang out in Jerusalem because something's coming. The Lord's going to fulfill the promise that I made to you. Now the promise he made was that he would send the Holy Spirit. So he now tells them, in a couple of days from now, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Now we know that he's referring to Pentecost there because that happens just a couple of days from now. And we'll spend some time in the coming weeks dealing with Pentecost. But I want to cover something briefly here. He says, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. What exactly does he mean by that? What was expected 
to happen. I want to define for you. We'll spend a little bit more time on this when we get to this section on, the, on baptism of the Spirit. But what was Jesus talking about when he said that they would be baptized with the Holy Spirit? I think that's key. Baptism with the Holy Spirit is mentioned a total of seven times in the New Testament. That phrase is used that way. Seven different times. Now, part of the problem is that the first five of those don't really tell us what it is. They simply tell us that it's going to happen, that it happens to Jews and Gentiles that come to Jesus Christ. And it also tells us that Jesus is the one that's going to do it. That Jesus will baptize us with the Holy Spirit. So again, those first five verses that we come across that deal with baptism with the Holy Spirit tell us it will happen, it's a reality for believers, it it tells us that Jesus will do it, but it doesn't tell us exactly what it is. Fortunately, the two remaining verses do. Let me define it for you this way. Baptism with the Spirit is the moment at which we, as believers, receive the gift of the Holy Spirit and we become partakers of the body of Christ, the divine nature, Peter says. Let me restate that. Baptism with the Spirit is the moment at which we, as individual believers, receive the gift of the Holy Spirit and become part of the body of Christ. I'm going to read a couple verses. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13. Paul writes this, For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, the body of Christ. Whether we are Jews or Greeks, whether we are slave or free, we are all made to drink of one Spirit. Now in the context of that, and everywhere else in the Bible, that happens at conversion for a believer. There's only one instance where it doesn't, that's Acts chapter 8, and there's a reason for that. But in every other place, believers receive the Holy Spirit to indwell them, they become partakers of the divine nature, they become part of the body of Christ at conversion, which is when we express repentance and our acceptance of Jesus Christ and what he did for us. Acts chapter 11, verses 15 through 17 says this. This is Luke speaking, or speaking about it. And as he began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as he did upon us at the beginning. This is Peter speaking, actually. Luke records it. He's talking about the Gentiles there. He basically says, the Holy Spirit came on the Gentiles as we were preaching the gospel to them. And he remembered, he says, I remembered the word of the Lord, Jesus, when he used to tell us, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Therefore, if God gave them the same gift as he gave us, also after they believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that could stand in God's way? What, happened, what Peter's talking about there is when the Holy Spirit came down upon the Gentiles, when they had become partakers of the divine nature, when they had become indwelt by the Holy Spirit, Peter said, oh, God's including the Gentiles in the body of Christ, not just us Jews. And so what we find in these verses here is that baptism with the Spirit simply is that point at which we are made members of the body of Christ We confess our sins, we accept the gift of life that Jesus Christ offers to us, and in doing that, the Holy Spirit takes up residence in us, indwells us, we are given him as a gift, it's where we're told that he is the seal of our redemption, he's what tells us that we're saved. It's what promises us that he'll keep us saved until the day that Christ returns. He now takes up residence within us, indwells us. We become, as Peter says, a partaker of God's nature. doesn't make us gods. makes us one with Christ. That's what baptism with the Spirit is now within some circles in Christianity. They'll 
say that it's all about speaking in tongues and everything else, and it's not true, folks. Those are manifestations of the Spirit, but that's not the same thing as being baptized with the Spirit. Baptism with the Spirit simply means Jesus Christ has placed us into the body of Christ by sending us the Spirit to now indwell us, to take up residence in us, and it's for the purpose of empowering us to be His witnesses. That's what it's about. And so that's what He was telling the disciples here. Stay in Jerusalem until this happens. It tells us why it's important. Look at verse, verses 6 and 8 of chapter 1 of Acts. So when they had come together, they were asking him, Lord, is it at this time that you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? So Jesus had just spent 40 days talking to him about the kingdom. What was going to happen? That would include his return and the establishment of his reign on earth, the thousand years where Christ will come down and fulfill all the promises given to Israel. And so he spent 40 days explaining all this to him, and now they're saying, oh, okay, you want us to go to Jerusalem? We're supposed to wait for this thing you just talked about. But are you going to really, is it going to happen now? Are you going to take up residence here with us? Are you going to establish your kingdom now? Is it now? And Jesus says, well, it's not for you to know the times or epochs which the Father has fixed in his own authority. In other words, no. <laughs> you know? No, it's not now. It's not for, your, for you to know. But he does tell us the Lord has fixed it. It will happen. So in essence, he's saying, yes, that will happen. It's just not going to happen now. So what's the purpose then, Jesus? What's the purpose of this gift you're offering? If it's not because you're going to come and establish the kingdom, why do we need to wait for this baptism with the Spirit? Because at this point, they hadn't received it yet. Verse 8, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria, and even to the remotest parts of the earth. Why did Jesus tell him to wait? Because the mission was to be his witnesses. The mission wasn't to establish his kingdom right then and, uh, right then and there, but rather to equip his apostles, who he had spent three and a half years training, another 40 days with a seminary education on the kingdom and what's to come. And they were now going to be sent out, he says, to be my witnesses. And in order to do that, they would need to be empowered by the Holy Spirit. And that's what he tells them here. The Holy Spirit is going to come upon you and you will receive power to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. I want you to look at John chapter 14 with me. This is something Jesus had promised him. While he was here on earth, John chapter 14, and you'll notice that John chapter 14 is not just to the apostles, but to the disciples of Christ, which would include us. So this promise of the baptism with the Spirit was not just something that he told the apostles, a group of 12 men. It's what he told all of his disciples. Chapter 14 of John, starting in verse 16. We're going to jump around a little bit. Verse 16, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, paraclete, it's called, someone who will come alongside you, that he may be with you forever. That is, the Spirit of truth 
whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him, but you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans and I will come to you. Jump down to verse 25 and 26. These things I have spoken to you while abiding with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Jump over to chapter 16, verses 5 through 15. But now I'm going to him who sent me, and none of you asks me, where are you going? Because, But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. But I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away, for I do not go away, or if I don't go away, the helper will not come to you, but if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. And concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you no longer see me, and concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world has been judged. Basically, let's go. Let's read on a couple more verses. And I have more things to say to you, but cannot bear. But you cannot bear them now. But when he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will discourse or disclose to you what is to come. He will glorify me, and he will take of mine, and will disclose it to you all things that the Father has our mind. Therefore, I said that he takes of mine and we'll discuss it to you. We spend a whole morning on just that verse or just that chapter alone, but essentially what Jesus is telling them is that I'm going to go to the Father. I'm not going to leave you as orphans here. I'm going to have the Father send the Holy Spirit. And he's going to do a number of things. It mentions here that it's going to, he's going to convict the world of sin and judgment. He's going to teach them truth. So in other words, the Father will continue to reveal part of his plan to the apostles, to the church, through, through teachers and preachers and prophets. He'll continue to speak. We, we have a New Testament that was written after this. 26 books, or 27 books of the Lord revealing. We're told through the Spirit, through godly men like Peter and Paul and others. So Jesus not only commissioned the church to be his witnesses until he returns, but he empowered us to carry out this mission by giving us the Holy Spirit. He didn't just leave us here to say, suck it up, pull yourselves up by your bootstraps, go about the business. Basically promised the helper, the Holy Spirit. Two of the most prominent themes in the book of Acts are the preaching of Jesus Christ and the multiplication of disciples. We see that repeated was this constant emphasis on preaching the resurrected Christ. It wasn't about themselves. It wasn't about some religion. It was about the man, Jesus Christ, the God-man, who was born as an infant, died in the place of us for our sins, was resurrected, and then ascended back to the Father. They preached Christ crucified. That is a theme that's repeated throughout the book of Acts. But it's also preached out, or it's also revealed through the book of Acts, this idea of the church continuing to grow. We see at Pentecost, 3,000 immediately come to Christ. We see a short time later, within a matter of days, another 2,000 come to Christ. And repeated throughout the book of Acts is their numbers were added to daily. We saw this, this explosion of the church, the body of Christ, throughout the book of Acts. Those are two extremely prominent themes. Isn't that what Jesus told the disciples in Matthew 28? One of the last things he said was, go therefore and make disciples of all nations by baptizing and teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you. 
It's exactly what Jesus told him to do, and we see that played out. But we only see that played out because Jesus sent the Helper. He sent the Holy Spirit. And that's really another prominent theme throughout the book of Acts, is the work of the Holy Spirit. There are some who have proposed that this book really should not be called the Acts of the Apostles. They've basically premised that it should be called the Acts of the Holy Spirit. Fifty-five times in this book, the Holy Spirit is mentioned. He is the cause behind everything that happens in this book. He continually comes up, and Dustin and I were talking about this this last week when we met. He's kind of like that little quiet guy that sits in the corner that does everything, but you just don't know that he's there doing everything. He just kind of keeps quiet, you know? Jesus Christ is the one that came to reveal the Father, you know? He's the front man, if you will. He's the one that we all see. But quietly, behind the scenes, God, the Holy Spirit, is the one convicting hearts, revealing wisdom and understanding and and the revelation of God, the one working to accomplish everything that Christ wanted to accomplish. number of ways that we see this throughout the book of Acts, and we'll see this as we go through it. I'll just rip through some of these. He filled the apostles at Pentecost. He enabled them to speak in these languages they had not learned so that they could communicate the gospel to Jews from all over the world. When Peter and Stephen and Paul stood up to preach, we're told that they were filled with the Spirit. This happened even when they were facing arrest, imprisonment, beatings, and even martyrdom. We see the Holy Spirit arrive to give them the stamina they needed to survive those things, to be able to continue to preach in the face of serious persecution. We know from, histor- from, from history that all of the apostles, except for maybe one, John, were martyred because of their faith. We see people like Stephen being killed very early in the book of Acts. We know that Peter was crucified upside down. We know that Paul was beheaded in Rome. How did these men do this? We took these guys who all scattered when Jesus Christ was arrested. All of a sudden, after this, become martyrs. Facing the most difficult challenges and trials. Willing to give up their lives for Jesus Christ. Why? Because they were empowered by the Holy Spirit. The same Holy Spirit that empowers us. We see him lead Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. We even see him snatch him up and transport him somewhere else, which is kind of a weird thing, but nonetheless, something that happened. He built up and confronted and caused the church to grow. We see that in Acts chapter 9. Um, he even directed Peter to Caesarea so that Peter might see that God's plan included us, the Gentiles. We see him call out Paul and Barnabas when it came to to sending somebody to the Gentiles to preach to the Gentiles. It tells us the Holy Spirit told the church, set aside Paul and Barnabas for that purpose. He guided and directed the church to expand from the Jewish audience, because all of them were pretty much Jews, to the Gentiles. Something that they had been taught, stay away from the Gentiles, they're dirty, but the Holy Spirit directed them and pushed them out to go to the Gentiles as God had promised. We see throughout the book of Acts that the Holy Spirit empowered the apostles and others with this ability to heal and perform miracles. We see those repeated. There's, I think, 18 miracles in the book of Acts, all done through individuals or by the hands of individuals or, or in some cases, God himself, but all through the power of the Holy Spirit. 
fact, 1 Corinthians chapter 12 tells us that the Holy Spirit gives gifts to everybody for the purpose of advancing the gospel and benefiting the body of Christ. And some of those include things like miracles and healings, speaking in tongues, prophecy, other things that happen. That's just a few of the examples. But we see the Holy Spirit throughout this book as really a main character that, again, is somewhat quiet. And and what I love about this is that it reminds us that that's what Christ has left us with. We are not alone in our mission. He's given us the Holy Spirit to empower us, to strengthen us, to encourage us, to motivate us, to move us. Luke starts his letter, his book, to Theophilus, with the emphasis on the baptism with the Spirit, because that's what enables us to do what Christ has called us to do. It's what we all have. If you're a believer, if you you know Jesus Christ, you've got the Holy Spirit within you to empower you, to strengthen you, to provide you with gifts and abilities to accomplish what Christ has left us with, which is to be his witnesses. And that's what we find here in the beginning of this letter. The last point I want to make is found in verses 9 through 11. Acts chapter 1, 9 through 11. And after he had said these things, he would lift it up while they were lift, or while they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And they were gazing intently into the sky while he was going. Behold, two men in white clothing, we know these to be angels, stood beside them. They said to him, men, or said to them, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up into the sky? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. What do we do with this? It's not all that shocking that the apostles are staring up into heaven. I mean, if you and I happen to have been there, and this guy that we had lived with for three and a half years, we saw him crucified, put to death, we think he's dead, now he's alive, he spent 40 days walking around with us, we kind of think he's going to stick around and establish his kingdom because that's what our Old Testament theology told us. We learn that really he's not going to stick around, but instead we're going to now be his witnesses. And then he's going to return at some point, and now we're watching him being taken up into heaven. I think all of us would be staring. At least I would be. Okay? It was a miraculous thing to see. But what's interesting about this is the, the two angels that are here, these men in white, offer a bit of a rebuke, which is really the way this is to be understood. I'm going to read you from uh, one of the commentaries that... Um, there's two different commentaries that I used to check some of my work on this. One of them said this about the ascension here, or about uh, yeah, what's happening here. It says, The mild rebuke is expressed in the question, Why do you stand looking into heaven? The idea is that they, stood, they should not be surprised that the risen Jesus is lifted up into God's presence. His departure means that they now have work to do. Jesus' command means that they are not to gaze up into heaven idly, waiting his return, but engage in the task Jesus has given them to do in the meantime. In other words, they're standing there, they're staring, and for all we know, they continue to stare as he drifted out of sight. They're still staring. Now what do we do? And the angels say, why are you still here? He commanded you to go back to Jerusalem. Go back to Jerusalem! You've got work to do! And so it's a bit of a mild rebuke. And that's exactly what they do. We learn in our actually passage that they go back to Jerusalem and they immediately begin to pray. 
And he immediately began to wait. What this tells me here is that we have a task to do and we shouldn't sit here and simply stand and wait and watch for Jesus to return. We can't be like the apostles, just saying, I'm just going to wait for him to return. There's a mission. There's a task he's given to us as the body of Christ. He could have just taken us all up, sucked us up with a giant hoover when we got saved, but he left us here because just like the apostles, we are to be his witnesses. We're to be his witnesses. And he's given us the Holy Spirit to do just that. What that tells me, though, is that that mission isn't going to be accomplished until when? Either I'm taken up or until he returns. We don't know how long that's going to be. Peter tells us, in his day, people were already complaining that Christ hadn't returned yet. Why isn't he back? We've waited long enough. It's all the same. And Peter says, well, don't think that God is is, um, slow about his coming. He's just patient. He's long-suffering because he doesn't want anyone to perish, but wants everyone to come to a knowledge of Christ. Which means we wait... But we're busy about the mission of hoping to see others come to know Christ. And our mission is not done until Christ comes. Unfortunately, I think in the American church, we've gotten busy about doing other things. We're doing other things while we wait. Some Christians are just sitting back, just waiting for him to return and go about life without even thinking much about the mission. We've got a mission. You can't just sit and stare and wait. It's about being his witnesses. Not something we should be afraid of because we've got the Holy Spirit to enable us to do that. But there's a mission we have as a church and it's not finished until Christ returns. When that might be, we don't know. But we can't just stare up at the sky wishing and waiting. We're supposed to be looking to the sky. We are supposed to be waiting for him to return. But in the meantime, being his witnesses. What do we do with this as a conclusion? As we go through our study, we're going to see these three realities kind of play out. We're going to see how our faith is not just some fairy tale, but our faith is built on real life historical events and things that happened throughout the book of Acts. We're going to see that. That should encourage us, should excite us should teach us something about Jesus Christ and about how he works and operates through us. It's going to tell us what we should be like as a church, what we should be like as individuals. We're going to be encouraged by the faith of people like Peter and Paul and Philip and others who stand in the face of opposition, who see God work. We're going to be encouraged by the fact that we see people come to know Jesus Christ because of their witness, because of their seriousness in taking the task to hand. We're going to see how the apostles and other believers risk their lives to bear witness to Christ. It's going to tell us what the cost is like. We're going to see how they went from Jerusalem into Judea, Samaria, and beyond. And how the gospel includes not just the promised believers of the Old Testament, the Jewish people, but Gentiles as well, and how God will graft us in. We're going to see how nothing but the return of Christ could stand in their way. These were people, Peter and Paul and others in the early church, they were busy. They didn't just wait. And they weren't going to let anything stand in their way. Opposition from Rome, opposition from the Jews. They were busy about the mission. That should encourage us. One last thing, and it's going to relate to how we're going to approach the book. Dustin already alluded to this. Um, 
there's different ways to look at the book. One way is just to look at it as ministry to the Jews, ministry to the Gentiles. It's kind of two halves. We kind of see that. Okay. Um, Luke appears to structure the book, however, according to what Jesus told them, that they would be witnesses in Jerusalem, then Judea, and Samaria, and then the ends of the earth. And Luke kind of does that. He starts in Jerusalem, then they kind of go on to, um, into Judea, then they go on to Samaria, and then ultimately we, we get Paul taking us all the way out to Rome, and the, the, sort of the edge of the known world at that time. So what we're going to actually do as we go through the book is we're going to kind of break it down into three sections, okay? The first section is chapters 1 through 9, and that's, that really covers the gospel's impact among the Jews in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and then the surrounding region, okay? That's going to probably take us about 22, I think it's, is that right, about 20 weeks? Something like that. Um, and then we're going to, we'll, we'll take a break if we think we need it. If you guys are like, no, let's keep going, then we'll dive into the second section. But if not... We'll break out, maybe do one of Paul's epistles or something, and then we're going to come back. We're going to finish the book of Acts. It may take us a while to get through it. But the second section is Acts chapter 10 through 21. So the first ten or first nine verses, or sorry, nine chapters are basically focused on the Jews. The second ten chapters or so, eleven chapters, covers the gospel spread among the Gentiles and covers most of Paul's ministry. Okay? We may have to take another break after that. But then lastly... It's the last third of the book, which covers Paul's ministry to Rome, or his journey to Rome. The last third of the book just covers Paul making his way to Rome, which is a fascinating section of the book as well, um, because it focuses primarily on Paul and the impact that he had. And so we learn an awful lot about the man who wrote nearly half of our New Testament. So we'll go through these, uh, through the book of Acts, kind of in that pattern. Like I said, we'll make it through the first third of the book, and then make some decisions at that point, whether you're like, okay, we're done with the narrative, let's move on to something else for a little bit, and then come back. Or if you guys want to keep on, we'll start the second section and do that. All right? I will leave you with that. I'm going to go ahead and pray, and then we'll spend a little bit of time singing.